You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's, it's pretty heady times in MMA right now. We just uh, are a couple of weeks removed from Francis Ngannou putting on the performance of a lifetime against Tyson Fury. We followed that up in the UFC this weekend with a trip down there to Sao Paulo, where Jailton Almeida pretty much ran over Derek Lewis en route to a unanimous decision. 50-44 on a couple of cards, 50-45 on the third card. And then coming up next week, UFC 295 from Madison Square Garden in New York, New York, the actual granddaddy of them all. It was supposed to be John Jones versus Stipe Miocic. Instead, we get the light heavyweight title fight between Yuri Prohaska and Alex Pereira, and of course the interim heavyweight title fight between Sergey Pavlovich and Tom Aspinall. So we're going to talk about that stuff that just happened and the upcoming stuff on this week's episode. But I also wanted to mention this as it pertains to Engano and Fury, because that is a fight that continues to make waves, continues to make headlines in the world, both of of boxing and MMA. We've been waiting, Ben, for noted boxing fan Dana White to respond to Francis Ngannou's performance against Tyson Fury. This week, he actually did. Uh, He's kind of, sort of gave Francis Ngannou a little bit of credit for for his performance in this fight, but he also really diffused it kind of any way he could. I'll just read the quote. Uh, for him, for you here. He, of course, he's t- he's in conversation here with Donald Trump Jr. As you are when yeah. you when you want to talk about a big boxing match, you go on uh, DTJ's podcast. Triggered is what it's called. Triggered. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it's called. Uh, so here's here's Dana White's quote. It's he says the fact that he went ten rounds with Tyson Fury is crazy. He just went ten rounds with Tyson Fury. Conor McGregor made it nine or ten rounds with Floyd. Anthony Pettis just beat Roy Jones Jr. I know Roy is friggin' sixty years old or whatever, but I don't know what the hell is going on. It's crazy. I didn't see the fight, but the fact he went ten rounds is unbelievable. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know what else you're supposed to say if you're Dana White, right? In this context, he pretty much says the minimum that he could possibly say about Francis Ngannou here, lumping him in with Anthony Pettis fighting 60-year-old Roy Jones Jr. and Conor McGregor fighting nine or ten rounds with Floyd before getting stopped in a fight that the UFC made a lot of money over. So I don't know what we expected, but this it still seemed a little bit underwhelming. I, if he was going to respond, I was like, at least go full Dana, right? Yeah. Give me something to talk about. Scorched earth, Dana. Yeah. But then it's hard to go scorched earth on the guy after he goes out there, drops Tyson Fury in his first ever boxing match and kind of barely loses a split decision. Like how, how bad can you be on the guy after that? Maybe you could really go scorched earth on Tyson Fury if you wanted to, but instead he decides to go with a, I guess MMA is just awesome 
sort of approach, which, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Then I assumed we got right back to talking about the liberal media or whatever they talk about over there on Triggered or just comparing our uh, synthetic testosterone programs that our uh, rich doctors have, have got us on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would have been a different story if Francis Ngannou had gone out there and gotten schooled by Tyson Fury the way a lot of us, even those of us who really liked the guy, kind of feared that he might. You imagine what it would have been like then? It would have oh, been, yeah. this guy fucked up, walked away from all this money we were going to pay him. We were going to pay him upwards of $30,000 in <laughs> athlete compliance pay for wearing the Venom stuff, whatever. You know, and he turned it all down and went over there just to get beat up. Oh, well, guess it proves that you should stay close to the UFC teat. And keep suckling on whatever we'll give you. And instead, he goes over there, makes a guaranteed 10 mil, does in fact not do a bad job, does quite a good job, is now sort of in the driver's seat for negotiating a next boxing match. Ain't too much you can say about that, really. Yeah. yeah. Do you believe him when he says he didn't watch the fight? No. <laughs> we have seen Dana White sitting cage side at his own events with boxing matches on the monitor. He likes some boxing. There's no way. he. I'm sure he watched it thinking and hoping that Francis Ngannou was going to get beat up. He might have turned it off when he dropped him with that left hook. <laughs> just in rage. But there's yeah, no way I believe that he... You know, UFC didn't have anything else going on that week. You can only play so much blackjack. There's no way I believe that he was just like, you know what, I'm going to read a book this Saturday afternoon instead. No, he watched it. Yeah, you watched no, it. I'm with you on that. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. But if you're not satisfied, if you're not sated, if you find yourself pining for more of that hot CME action, well, you can find the co-main event, Ben Folks and myself all week over on Patreon. Hit us up at patreon.com slash co-main event and get loads of extra audio and video content as well as access to our official Discord message board. The coolest people in MMA are constantly chatting it up over there on any number of topics. Right now, we're offering seven-day free trials at the $5 level. You can jump on board absolutely for free and check out all the content happening over there. Take a look, bathe your ears in its goodness, and then decide if you want to join up for real. Everybody knows by now we are a completely independent podcast. We don't have the backing of a big parent company or even one of the major MMA websites. We're just two guys talking into a microphone, and we've been doing it for over a decade. But the truth is, we can only keep making the show with your support Help keep the CME alive by joining up to become part of the awesome community over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Another way you could support the show is by going to the co-main event.com and checking out our merchandise shop. The holidays are coming up. And if you've got yep. a father or a brother or an uncle and you don't know what to buy for them, may we suggest one of our fine daddest man on the planet coffee mugs. They're the perfect gift for the dad in your life. We guarantee he'll like it better than socks. We got t-shirts, hats, hoodies, and more over at the shop. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says shop. We're partnering on the shop. 
Go, go ahead. No, you got something. Go ahead. You just know. I mean, I'm just saying this right now out of a public service. Early November, we're sitting here right now. Christmas is coming up. Be here before you know it. You're sitting around. You're thinking, what do I get? My dad, my father-in-law, somebody like that. You know, he already got enough ties. Yeah. You know that. You know in your heart he doesn't need another tie. The little electronic thing, the little range finder thing for the golf course where he can like hold it up to his eye and see how many yards away the pin is. You also know that's more money than you want to spend on him. Let's be honest. But you know what? He doesn't even need to listen to this show or be aware of his existence in order to enjoy a mug that says Daddess Man on the planet. That speaks for itself. It's just a good idea. And if you get in there and order it now, it'll get here in plenty of time for the holidays. You Think should also it. order it now, by the way. This is this is this is real. Order it now because you get into December and shipping starts taking forever, right? Yeah. Get in on it now, few days, you'll have it. Put it in your closet. You won't have to worry about what to get the big man for Christmas. As always, we're partnering with our friends Super Studio Superconductor on the shop. They are a brand and design studio from Portland, Oregon. We can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at studiosuperconductor. We got music this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And against that's the, again, that's the word beats with a Z. Beat. Also, Chad, Listen, it might be better if your dad or father-in-law or whoever didn't know about the show's existence, because if you were to take that mug, this is Daddy's Man on the Planet, present it to him and tell him you had it custom made just for him because you do, in fact, believe he is the Daddy's Man on the Planet, he might never know that there are others in existence. You could tell him it's the only one. Who'd be there the gainsay, Yeah, as they yeah. say on Deadwood? You better hope he doesn't know about the show, because if you get him the mug, then for his birthday, he's going to want the Volcomania t-shirt. There's yeah. also that. Three rounds as usual. Dasso hoodie. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Jailton Almeida put on a suffocating performance against Derek Lewis on Saturday. But a lot of us seem to have it 50-45 for Lewis on the scorecards in our hearts. And in round number two, shit maybe just got real, really, really real in the antitrust case against the UFC. And in round number three, John Jones drops out and matchmakers shuffle the card, leaving UFC 295 looking a little top heavy. We discuss all that. Plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. Have you signed up for your NordVPN deal exclusively through the co-main event? If you haven't, you really, really should. With NordVPN, you get the fastest VPN on the planet. NordVPN provides online protection with a single click. Don't miss your favorite content even when you're traveling. Stay at home virtually. Stay safe with malware and uh, from malware with threat protection. Ben and I both have it. We both use it all the time. Ben, I know you love some NordVPN. What's your favorite part of using it? Jed, my favorite part is how it clicks on wherever you are as you bounce from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi to keep you protected. Because you know how it is. You're standing in a line at the bank with your phone out while you're there to make a large cash withdrawal. You're also standing in line with your phone out while you're waiting for the betting machine down at Katie O'Keefe's to become available so that you can place your guaranteed can't-miss bet 
on Jelton Almeida and Derek Lewis to end inside the distance. <laughs> then you also got your phone out when you're over there at the therapist's office on Monday morning going, I'm sorry, but I did it again. Doesn't matter. NordVPN has you covered at all these locations. You can also access Nord's amazing cybersecurity apps, including the NordPass password manager, helping you keep all your passwords straight and close at hand. And with the NordLocker encrypted cloud storage app, you can keep your files backed up, synced, and protected from snoopers, loss, or malware in its secure cloud. Nobody will see, touch, or sell them. Sign up right now for any of NordVPN's handy two-year plans and get an additional four months for free by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main. Just be sure you use those handy exclusive CME links. That's nordvpn.com slash co-main and use the code co-main. First question this week comes to us from the unreleased Tesla truck. Well, okay. So, yeah. Is that the one that, uh, that Joe Rogan went and shot with the arrow? Don't know. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen Joe Rogan shoot anything with an arrow in a You didn't see the video of Joe Rogan standing like fucking six feet away from a RoboCop ass looking Tesla truck and shoot it with an arrow as Elon Musk looked on approvingly as if to say, see, my car will keep you safe from the many archer attacks, the many foot archers that you encounter in the 21st century driving environment. You didn't see this. No. Did Elon Musk imagine that I'm going to be taking my Tesla truck like through a battle scene, medieval battle scene? <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of guys he with thought, crossbows cro- cropping up and loosen, loosen some bolts at the uh, he Tesla thought truck. Maybe you, you, you might be in danger of driving so fast you travel back in time to the Battle of Little Bighorn <laughs> and what? then a stray arrow catches you. What, what happened? What happened when he shot the arrow? Did it just. Arrow didn't go through. Where did he shoot it? In the window or the... Into the door, naturally. Into the door. Did he shoot it at the tires at all? Or were we're good there too? Arrow attack? Why are you asking these dumb questions, man? (laughs) He just stood there and shot an arrow at the door and the point was proven. Okay. Yeah. That's all there was to say about it. Silly me. Anyway, the unreleased Tesla truck writes, Did Vince Pichel make a smart move in declining to fight the other Bonfim brother who missed weight at UFC Sao Paulo? We just saw how Wonderboy was treated, and he actually is a relevant fighter. Pichel said he declined the fight in order to teach his opponent a lesson, but isn't making the trip all the way to Brazil in addition to receiving 30% of your opponent's purse reason enough? Not that it matters at all, but did he just get himself cut? You know, this this was a, this was sort of a late breaking. This is, you know, on, on uh, weigh-in day, we find this out. Uh, Vince Pichel defi- d- declines this fight after his opponent misses weight. And I, I mean, the unreleased Tesla truck is, is, is brings up a good point here. We've seen the UFC react negatively toward these kind of moves in the past, but is it possible that Vince Pichel's irrelevant nature actually makes this a safer move for him since we didn't need to have this fight on the card anyway? Yeah, but the UFC is not always super cool about that. Because you're right that it didn't necessarily change anything about this fight card for us, the viewer. It certainly didn't change what the UFC was going to make off this fight card. So their bottom line, if anything, it improves when you don't have to pay the money you already have budgeted to pay some of these guys. But they don't historically love it when the fights don't stay together and when it is because of somebody's choice. I mean, I get it in a way where... I, the stuff he is saying where he was like, I think it's unprofessional of my opponent to show up 
this much overweight. I mean, he was like three and a half pounds overweight still. And he claimed he was like, he didn't even try to make it. And I don't think that kind of lack of professionalism should be rewarded. So I'm not going to reward him by letting him fight me and, and get his show money or whatever. And I get that in theory, but knowing how the UFC works and how it tends to look at this stuff, I don't know if that was a great idea. I also, I could see the argument being made here by the unreleased Tesla truck that if you're somebody, like if you're in Vince Pichel's situation, you did go all the way down there. If you fight, you at least get your show money. You get a portion of his purse. Uh, and now instead you get the UFC reason to be mad at you. And maybe they put you on the shelf for a little while before they offer you your next fight. Like it just seems like you did put yourself in a, in a tough financial spot over that. Yeah. Uh, Vince Pichel has since tweeted a meme that says, sometimes you have to kill a fly with a sledgehammer, and it's not just about that fly, it's about the other flies watching. And he says, as I said... That actually doesn't work. I've tried this on flies before. Like, you can't terrorize flies by doing something bad to one of them and then think, like, that'll keep the others out of here. Doesn't work at all. He says, as I sit on the plane to head home and think to myself, maybe I should have just accepted the fight and stomped his ass out. This hit me even harder and reassures me my decision was in fact the right one to make, even though I took a hit for it as well. Things happen for a reason, although I don't see the reason for this one yet. I will know one day. See, I don't know about the things happen for a reason in this situation where a thing happened, you made a choice based on the thing that happened, and then a sort of predictable series of events follow. I mean, if you, I, I get the thinking still. Like, hey, the guy shows up overweight. You feel like he didn't even really try to make it. I know some fighters will tell you that they feel like the punishment for missing weight is just not enough to provide like a, a counter incentive to people. But still, I don't know if I just add up all the figures here and the calculations that where Vince Bichelle ends up. I don't know if this was a great move given where he is and the, that the thing most people know about him right now is going to be that he wouldn't take this fight. Like, I, I mean, know. I guess we'll find out one way or the other. Next question this week comes to us from voiceofgarcia.com, who writes, Did you see the heated interview between Ariel and Chael on the recent MMA hour? In my opinion, they were both arguing on two different points. Ariel on the business of Francis Ngannou and Chael on the business of the industry. I know friends fight from time to time, but doesn't this hurt Ariel in the long run on being more alienated from fighters in general, since he does love to instigate from time to time? Okay, first of all, Ariel Helwani is not an instigator. This man is a journalist asking the questions that fans want to know the answers to. And if that is instigating, so fucking be it, man. And I think the only reason that he would get the reputation for being an instigator is that maybe other people are not asking those questions. Yep. So there you have That's it. That's a big part of it. Uh, we talked about this on Friday on the Power Hour. I have already... Uh, confessed that like Joe Rogan shooting the unreleased Tesla truck with an arrow, I have not watched Chael and Ariel shouting at each other on the MMA hour, and I'm not going to because I just don't have a lot of patience for that. It's just I know it's how it's going to make me feel deep down in my soul. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to myself. So I haven't watched it. I understand you watched at least part of it, 
And I guess the question is, was was Chael just being a silly little guy? Was he working his gimmick? Was he out there hashtag just saying stuff? Did they get in a real row? And or uh, does this further alienate Ariel from some manner of fighter fighting group, groups of men who fight? Uh, first of all, I went to check out voiceofgarcia.com. Uh, Mike Garcia, he's a voiceover artist. Yeah, so no, he, he emails us from time to time. Seems like a good dude. Uh, the, I, I think that you're, you're, my man voice of Garcia is kind of right about them having two different conversations too, because is Chelsona being a silly little guy? Yes, absolutely. The fact that he tried to make his capital T take on Francis Ngannou, Tyson Fury be that Francis Ngannou really fucked up by going over there, making $10 million in one night, doing awesome in a boxing match and putting himself in a great negotiating position going forward, that this was a mistake and that he should have re-signed with the UFC so that he could maybe make around as much if he won six fights in the next two years. Like, obviously, I don't think Chael Sonnen really believes that. He's trying to offer a counterintuitive take, something that people can get mad about and argue about because... It's the only way to make yourself noticeable in the take economy is to say something different from what everybody else is saying. If everybody else is saying Francis Ngannou done did it, he grabbed the bag uh, and did a great job, then you've got to say something different so that people notice you. So Jill's smart at, at doing that, and he's been doing it for a long time. But, I mean, did they get into some real heated shit? Absolutely. Like, Chael was really mad. You could tell Ariel was really mad. But also... They are not at a certain point having the same conversation because one thing you, as I said, I think on the power hour, if you start to have a conversation with Chael Sonnen on the facts and the facts stop supporting him, he will act like the facts cannot possibly be known, that the facts are themselves just opaque and unknowable. And that's just a thing that he has done for a long time. That's a rhetorical strategy of his. And also he has always sort of had this approach to this business that basically Hey, the UFC, right or wrong, is the 800-pound gorilla, and you need to cozy up to them and take whatever they will give you. And that the only way to success in this business is staying on good terms, keeping your arms outstretched for whatever largesse the UFC sees fit to trickle down to you. And whether that's right or just, that's the way to do it. And that's the way he did it. That's the way he advises other fighters to do it. He'll, he is just not going to be the dude who's out here like you guys should unionize, join together and demand a more equitable share of the pie. He's, I think, just way more utilitarian than that. He's just like, oh, if you did that, then the by the time you reaped any benefits, you wouldn't be the one getting them. Other people would. And it's like, that's true. But that's also an argument for, you know, just staying exploited. For your entire working lives. And you look at athletes in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, they wouldn't be where they are if everybody thought like that. So I, he's always had that approach. He approaches this one the same way. But it's like the Francis Ngannou situation, as rare as it is for a lot of different reasons and how it took a, a special contractual provision to even allow that to happen. And that contra contractual provision is now basically gone. You can't at all look at this and be like, Francis Ngannou made a mistake. He didn't. He bet on himself the entire time. He was willing to take tremendous risks to do it, and it paid off and is going to continue paying off at least for the near future. 
Like, there's no way to argue that he's not better off there. And so, yeah, you, you could go on there and get into it with Ariel because it, it kind of helps Chael's brand a little bit. But it doesn't mean that you are right about anything. And it's not even his goal to be right about it. It's his goal to be noticed and talked about. Yeah. If you want to know whether or not Francis Ngannou made a mistake and or how the UFC actually feels about it, given all of the smoke that they blow pretty much constantly, just know that they quietly snuck back into the contracts and eliminated that loophole that Francis Ngannou used to walk away from the UFC. That tells you. That tells you how they feel. Wanted to make sure no one could ever do that again. (laughs) Next question this week comes to us from ABC, which stands for a bitch ass casual. Nice. Which should be ABAC, but you know, whatever. Well, I think they're saying bitch ass is hyphenated. So maybe it just. Oh, okay. So that's one word. A bitch ass casual. Okay. Bitch ass casual. Yeah. He writes, I know this is a sign of the times, but am I wrong in openly questioning what is the third best fight on UFC 295? In years past, the third best fight was either Poirier versus Chandler or Chandler versus Gaethje. This year, we're getting Frivola versus St. Denis. While the interim heavyweight scrap is admirable, the lineup is is lacking... Uh, is lacking minus historical significance of Jones versus Stipe and will make this a linkable Saturday night if you catch my drift. I know what he's saying. I, I hear what it. he's saying. Linkable. Yeah, it's linking it. Link, like you link can link up with friends. I get it. You yeah. could link up with friends and share the cost of the pay-per-view that way mm-hmm. to defray or, the... Or you could link up with friends and you could all buy it individually. Right? <laughs> Everyone could just buy it on their own. All right, so, here, so here's what we got. We got... Uh, Yuri Prohaska versus Alex Pereira. Obviously, that's the main event for the light heavyweight title. You got Sergey Pavlovich and Tom Aspinall for the heavyweight interim title. You got Mackenzie Dern versus Jessica Andrade. You got Matt Fervola versus Benoit Saint-Denis, which was mentioned. And you got Diego Lopez versus Pat Sabatini. That is your main card. You've, you got uh, Jared Gordon versus Mark Madsen way down on the uh, ESPN Plus early prelims. But this is like I said at the... Uh, you also got Tabitha Ricci versus Loopy on this thing. Uh, but this is, like I said at the top of the show, a little bit top-heavy. You got those two fights up there at the top, and then I don't know exactly where you go from there. Do you think—I guess there's two options, Ben. Do you think that the best third fight, the third best fight, is Mackenzie Dern versus Jessica Andrade, or do you think it's Frivola versus St. Denis? You know, I think that those are both pretty good fights, honestly. And I could see—I could definitely see uh, Frivola— and St. Denis being a kind of surprise slobber knocker, kind of crazy, exciting fight. Uh, I think, though, that as far as, you know, what we're doing in the division, and, and I think we're, everybody's still interested to see where Mackenzie Dern can go in her career. So I think that that one carries some significance. I also, though, think when you got two title fights, even if one's for a vacant title, one's for a interim title, but between two legit, exciting, young, up-and-coming heavyweights uh, in one, and then, you know, the other just being... Yuri Prohaska and Alex Pereira is the kind of fight you would make on the video game, you know, as soon as you got a chance to, because it seems like bound to be some bonker shit happening in that one, one way or another. When you got those two at the top, you can afford a little bit of... I don't want to say anonymity, but you can afford a little less star power on the supporting cast. Just because I think it's hard if you have one fight 
because one thing it could fall out. But also, yeah. if you just got one, people will be like, I'll wait for the highlight to hit social media. You know, I can see basically the ending in a GIF or like a short video posted to Twitter before it gets taken down, posted to Reddit. And I don't need to pay for the whole thing. But if you got two, now you got yourself something closer to a full evening of entertainment. And I think that that still motivates people a little more. Even if they they look at the rest of the main card, there's not anything that really jumps out at you. as like, well, I also got to see that. Yeah, and I think we need to be fair, right, in saying that we were putting a lot of eggs in the John Jones versus Stipe Miocic backs basket. This wasn't the original vision for what this MSG card was supposed to be. You were supposed to have, uh, you know, the current heavyweight champion versus the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. And that uh, Prohaska versus Piera Pereira was supposed to be the co-main. And that would have been a pretty solid one-two lineup to atop this card. And so you lose a lot. Obviously, you lose a lot every time a fight like Jones versus Miocic is going to fall out. And... I don't know. I feel like they still have two pretty pretty good fights at the top of this thing. The rest of it, I agree, a little bit weak. But I think that they're willing to to roll the dice on that, considering uh, a lot of factors involving the new pay per view system and and you know two pretty solid cards for fights at the top of the card. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Percy Link on Patreon. He writes, "I just came across a Nate Diaz quote." saying that he'd rather fight, quote, good fighters in response to a Jeremiah Paul rematch. Now, see, this is, this is you're getting in the way back machine here. Remember when we used to make, make up funny names for yeah. the Paul brothers? Well, now the Paul brothers have stuck around so long and, dare I say, become halfway relevant that now we got to use their real names. Yeah, and now it's just like kind of the joke's on us to act like, oh, these Paul guys going to show up and we're never going to be able to tell them apart because shit. Oh, they actually kind of matter. Yeah. What the hell? How'd that happen? Percy Link goes on to say, this perplexes me, meaning the uh, Diaz is saying that he won't fight Jake Paul. This perplexes me because aren't big money opponents, big money opportunities. The reason is Claude, his, the reason, oh boy. Okay. This perplexes me because aren't big money opportunities the reason, I'm just going to say he, clawed his way out of the UFC contract, nearly avoiding an almost certain Chemayev ragdolling session. Unless the PFL offers are complete bullshit, he'd make about as much during his entire UFC run, which was reported at $11 million. Is Nate Diaz not really about that life? Please provide some discourse. Thanks. Love you both equally. I mean, I'm not about to sit here and tell you Nate Diaz is not about that life. Yeah, we've we got a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of history with the Diaz brothers that would point us toward uh, them, in fact, being about this life. Let me being at times too much about the life could could well be too much about the life. Here's Nate Diaz's actual tweet. It says, I'm good. I'd rather fight real fighters and never backtrack to the minor leagues. Pussy FL crying Whoa. crying laughing emoji crying laughing emoji crying laughing emoji and then he says fight yourself dipshit yourself being spelled <laughs> u r s e l f yourself uh i mean look we talked about chael sometimes on twitter the diaz brothers are being silly little guys yeah so who knows what nate's doing here is he trying to get more money is he saying he just doesn't want the fight is he just being a little coy and eventually he takes it i don't feel like there's any there's any way to know how many fighters do you think when they saw him refer to pfl as pussy fl went god damn it why didn't i think of that 
It seems like it's it would perfect. play well the to that demographic. Right yeah. So I don't know to answer your question. I would say if I had to sit here and tell you what I think is really going on with Nate Diaz, I would think that is the sticking point. What does PFL want to get him to agree to in terms of contract length? Are they offering him like a one fight deal just to come in and do this one? Cause I would think that that's probably not the case, right? Like if they're offering Nate Diaz something like this, don't you think it's probably that they want Nate Diaz to be locked in a contract with them for a while? And maybe that's what he doesn't want to do. You, there's just no way you're going to convince me that Nate Diaz is thinking that an MMA fight against Jake Paul would be not to his advantage. That he doesn't want to make the money or that he's so scared of what Jake Paul would offer in an MMA fight. It's Nate Diaz going to go out there and guillotine that man. Yeah. Like that's that would be the opportunity to get one back. And if you make a bunch of money doing it, that'd be even nicer. It, Maybe I could see this as a ploy to get them to come down on, uh, you know, the length of the contract or what they're asking him to do. Because you're just not going to convince me that Nate Diaz is scared of Jake Paul in this context. He fought him in a boxing match, which is not to his advantage. Yeah, I just there's no way to know what's going on with the Diaz brother on social media from one minute yeah. to the next. So we'll see what happens, I guess. That's going to do it this week for Listener Mail. If you have questions, comments, or concerns for the future of listener mail, you know how to do it. Go to our website, comainevent.com and click that link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us right now. We're going to go ahead and get into round number one. Round number one is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke, purveyors of fine, fine personal grooming products. Kids, Fulton and Rourke has a couple new scents that have just dropped. Cloudland is a skin scent that interacts with your body chemistry to create a scent that's totally unique to you. That's science is what that is. It also features a prominent note of petrichor, which is that smell you encountered just before a thunderstorm in the summer. Meanwhile, Thousand Palms is an intense, super fresh scent comprised of crisp bell pepper, tuberose, and patchouli. Ben? Yeah, do both of those fragrances sound a little insane to you? Because the folks at Fulton and Rourke assure us that they're both actually incredible and unlike anything you have smelled before. But... They're not just asking you to roll the dice on them. With their fragrance discovery set, you can try out different scents before you buy the full-size product. Plus, it comes with a coupon code toward your next order. I've had the the scent discovery, the fragrant discovery sets, and they're great. I've used yeah, them. I know you have. Even better, your eyes. Fulton and Rourke has the 30-day no-questions-asked return policy, so if you don't like something, just send it back for a refund or exchange. It's your choice. And Co-Maniacs can use the coupon code CME20 to get 20% off your total order, even if it's just a discovery set, which, as I already said, are in fact great. Remember to use the code CME20 for 20% off whatever you like. Go to FultonandRourke.com. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. Well, Ben, we got some emails on the topic of Derek Lewis and Jailton Almeida. I figured... They were good, and we might as well use them to kick things off here in round number one. I will read this one. It's a little bit long, but it is from Bruno from Brazil. And maybe maybe you can tell just from the name, 
Bruno from Brazil, that we're going to get into the heart of the matter here. Bruno writes, I was watching last Saturday's main event on UFC Fight Pass Brazil, and the discourse was unanimously positive. Jailton Almeida absolutely dominated Derek Lewis, a guy that usually does not allow jiu-jitsu to work on him. Improved positions, took the mount multiple times, worked towards submissions. A great victory! The commentary booth is hyped, calling Jailton the Brazilian Dagestani. Uh, praising his relentless takedowns and success on the ground. I was hyped as well. Then I went on X, formerly Twitter. You know, let's just call it Twitter. Nope, we're not doing that. Not me, doing it. Let me it's just, Twitter. Let me reread. Then I went on Twitter, and everybody seems to be hating on Almeida's performance, calling him boring, complaining he just laid on top of Lewis for most of the fight. What gives? I'm on the verge of going full tribal here, and claim that if Jailton had a funny beard and was born on some mountain with an unpronounceable name in the Caucasus region, he would be hailed as the new powerhouse of the division. Alas, he's just a Brazilian. So I need some unbiased and unfettered answers over here. Was that a dominant wrestling performance, or was that a boring, boring lay and pray? Please, if you fine gentlemen could direct me toward the correct opinion that would be much appreciated and i guess i would just say can it kind of be both because man i'll tell you what jailton almeida was impressive with the takedowns he's out here with the takedowns that you don't always see in the heavyweight division with the relentlessness his ability to switch up do some different things in order to get Derek lewis down but once you get Derek Lewis on the ground, as we know, as we've seen a lot of times before, that man is good at getting up. That's his main thing is getting out of trouble and getting up and staying up and trying to land those big bombs on you. So I just think Jailton Almeida felt like positional control was the best way to go with Derek Lewis. And he would rather do that than try something, try a submission that was going to allow Derek Lewis to get up and then was going to put the fight back in the danger zone for Jailton Almeida. So all that is true. But could Jailton Almeida have done a little bit more to finish the fight? Probably he could have. And I think some of this backlash, some of this uh, criticism of Jailton Almeida's performance is that like, like we've seen from other fighters in the past, it seemed like he could have finished the fight if he had poured it on a little bit more. And so, I don't know. I, I think it was a dominating performance. I thought the takedowns were stupendous. And at the same time, I did want to see a little bit more urgency in, in terms of him trying to finish the fight. Don't you think at least part of it is a question of expectations yeah. coming into this? Because Jelton Almeida came in as a huge favorite in this one. Even if you took the line on him to win in the first round it was still like minus 190 odds it if you had told me that in the first minute of the fight Jelton Almeida will land a head kick get a takedown and achieve full mount I would have been like well there you go there's no way that that one is going to start round two this one is going to be over in the first frame. And it seemed going into it that like, that was probably one of the most likely scenarios, especially because I think he's only been out of the first round once in the UFC and hardly ever in his career. He's only uh, been only... to the third round once in his career. And it was one of his two losses. Yeah. Uh, he lost he went, the decision. Yeah. Lost the decision to Bruno Assis back in Chuto, Brazil. He has never been out of the second round previous to this in his UFC career and had he had won 
all of his fights via stoppage. All of his wins are, are via stoppage leading into this Derek Lewis fight. He's 20 and two overall. So I think the expectation that he would finish him is, is well-founded. And uh, Bruno from Brazil makes a decent point about how when the Dagestani dudes show up with the Abe Lincoln beard <laughs> and wrestle somebody and we go like, oh, aren't these guys so dominant at it, whether they finish the fight or not. But then it's like, that's what we expect of those guys. That's what we we've come. To, that's what we came to expect of Habib. And so when he was doing that, it was like, here, he's doing his stuff. He knows that, you know, he's going to do it and he's going to do it to you anyway. And in this one. It's like you get a guy who has a bunch of early finishes against Derek Lewis, whose whole thing is just throwing bombs and knocking people out. And you think, well, one way or another, we are not going to need the judges in this one, right? And instead, you get kind of the other kind of heavyweight fight. Yeah. You know? Plus, I did think it was a little interesting that Almeida was able to get him down so much, achieve dominant positions, get to the mount, and basically just like pin his wrists down like your big brother. Just like he's where he's going to hold you down and like pretend like he's going to hawk a loogie on you. And he was choosing positional control and trying for submissions instead of opening up with ground and pound, probably because he was afraid that that would give Derek Lewis the opportunity to get out reverse position, which he did a couple times. And so that's it creates an impression in people's minds that you're dominating this guy. You could do more to get him out and you are content just to keep it safe for yourself and control the guy and wait it out until you win a decision. And so, yeah, people are not necessarily going to appreciate that. I also think that at least some of the people pissed off about it, it was because they did not see a whole lot of interest on this fight card. They Maybe if they watched it live, they stayed up late on a Saturday night just being like, well, this heavyweight action is going to be worth it all. And instead, then they get five rounds of one guy holding the other guy down and uh, trying like eyeing the referee every once in a while as we just spend long periods of time basically motionless and they go what the fuck was that that is not what i stayed up till midnight to watch for and uh, they're gonna be upset about that as well so like i, I think that obviously jelton almeida that boy's still good yeah. has a good future at heavyweight uh brings a little something different than a lot of the other dudes do but i can also see how some people watch that fight and were like similar to the complaints that you got about your only fans page chad they thought it was going to be something different than it was mm-hmm. you know yeah they didn't expect it to me be me slipping tweezers into a glass bottle and very carefully raising the sails on a ship that I had built. Which has an appeal as well. You know, it's just a different appeal from what they were expecting. Hey, everybody, we're going to be painting a sunset today. I got myself this fresh (laughs) blank canvas. We're just going to get into it. All right, that brings us to this question from Jason Pian, who writes, I could ask about Mark Goddard's uh, wanting to stand up Almeida and Lewis while the former had mount, but how about those UFC 30 logos slowly peeling off Derek Lewis's gloves? I guess he got a pinch pennies when raising 800 million, give or take. Uh, What'd you think about no stand-ups here? I love the moment when Mark Goddard was looking at that. Like when Mark Goddard says at some point, don't look at me fight. Yeah. And it's like, that's a hell of a thing to say. Well, one guy is in full mount, you know, that's, that's, I don't know if I've ever heard that. At the same time, the instances to stand somebody up from full mount are few and far between, but this might've been one of them at least once, at least once get a stand up because you know, you know he would have took a ton of shit if he had true. done that. That's true. But still, man, there wasn't a lot happening there. Uh, all right. 
Oh, well, I didn't know. I did want to talk about the gloves because that was janky as shit. It's one of the things I noticed as well during this fight. There was a piece of the white glove decal sticking to the side of Derek Lewis's head at one point. <laughs> but, I mean, they were also doing a ton of, like, hand fighting and rolling around, you know, ripping their gloves out from under each other and all this different stuff. So, you know, you could pay top dollar for some gloves with you the ufc 30 logo stenciled on there and they might have ripped off with these two big boys down there having a grindy sweaty uh you know sort of pummely ass fight yeah but that is a safety issue honestly like if you've got something coming off the gloves as we're throwing them in the direction of one another's eyes like uh that ain't great yeah yeah this I've never seen a fight stopped because a decal off a glove got stuck in somebody's eye. But if it did happen, I wouldn't be shocked. I've seen fights get fucked up because especially in like in boxing or something where the tape on somebody's gloves or the lace or something comes loose and gets in somebody's eye. So like, yeah, it's just it seems like an, an avoidable problem. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's move on to are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll do round number two. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad... I don't know if you noticed this, but are you fucking kidding me? A whole bunch of fights just got announced. Dana White doing his thing, doing war room shit. Okay, yeah. As we were sitting here recording this here podcast. Oh, this just happened? This is breaking news as this we record? This is breaking dun, news. Dun, 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 we're, dun, we're, dun, we're putting together dun, the lineup dun, dun. for 2024. How, how's I heard this? they got all the fights planned till like 2028. That's what they told Aaron Bronstetter at one point. They got all the fights yeah. planned out. Man. They don't even know who's going to go insane and drive a school bus through a kindergarten. A couple of eighth graders are going to gonna headline UFC 450 in 2029. How's this strike you, Chad? Sean Strickland going to defend that middleweight title against the boy DDP. Okay. Dreykus yeah. Duplessis in January in Toronto at UFC 297. Hmm. And Chad, how about this one? Alexander Volkanovsky is going to get his wish granted to get right back in there, get back to work. Going to take on Ilya Teporia in February yeah. at UFC 298. And Chad, Sean O'Malley going to defend his title in a rematch with Chito Vera in March at UFC 299. Yeah, I mean, those are all perfectly serviceable fights. Those are good UFC main event uh, championship fights. I was kind of with Henry Cejudo, though, when it came to recommending to Alexander Volkanovsky that he kind of take the slow road back yeah, he's to not gonna do that. back to a title fight, so back to a title defense. So it's a little faster than I wanted to see him return, but given his comments in the cage after the uh, Islam Mahachev knockout, it's not a surprise as well. Also, kind of thrown out, are you fucking kidding me? Did we all just act like DDP seriously messed up? By not taking what for him would have been a sh somewhat short notice fight <laughs> when he was all messed up against Israel Adesanya. Instead, he opts to wait, recover, uh, get himself in, in title fight shape, and maybe kind of gets an easier matchup against Sean Strickland yeah. with the title on the line. Suffers no real negative consequences for it at all while everybody was like, oh, that's it. DDP has messed up for good. He's going to rue the day. Are you fucking kidding me? It kind of seems like this has all worked out in his favor, at least so far. Yeah. Are you no, kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. That's a great point about uh, Drikus Duplesis. Well, Ben, here I am going around, checking out the MMA headlines. Yeah. And I see this one. Byline MMA fighting staff, naturally. Uh-oh. 
Uh, the headline says Mark Zuckerberg tears ACL while quote training for a competitive MMA fight. Then he's got, uh, it's a picture of Zuck up there in the hospital bed. The, he's got the, the leg up there in a brace in traction. He's given the fist pose, given the, uh, inappropriate fist pose from his hospital bed. His comment on Instagram says, tore my ACL sparring and just got out of surgery to replace it. Grateful for the doctors and team taking care of me. I was training for a competitive MMA fight early next year, but now that's delayed a bit. Still looking forward to doing it after I recover. Thanks everyone for the love and support. Are you fucking kidding me? Dude, if you can be one of the richest men in the world, owner of basically unlimited money, unlimited time, unlimited opportunity. And the best that you can come up with is to fight in MMA. That is like a savage ass indictment of capitalism. Maybe one of the most (laughs) savage that I've ever heard. If you're Mark Zuckerberg, you've basically achieved the first place, fifth degree, black belt, grand master, flawless victory of our society. You won the game bigger and better than almost anybody else has ever won the game in the history of America. And your response is, now I'd like to fight someone who is probably being paid to lose to me inside a steel cage stripped to the waist under the unified rules. Fuck you, dude. You fucking kidding me? (laughs) Do you think when Mark Zuckerberg has to go in there for an ACL replacement, he gets the good ACL? The one they keep in back? (laughs) You know? The one one off the top shelf that they've been holding on to for a while? Like, these plebs aren't going to get this ACL. We got this one. Off a guy who was going to be a blue chip college running back, uh, but then, you know, got hit by a bus or something and died. Uh, that ACL has been in storage and in, in like freeze dried space for months now. And Mark Zuckerberg rolls in and is just like, give me the platinum ACL. Yeah. Give me yeah. the good stuff. I bet. Yeah. He probably gets the top shelf ACL. I'm just saying, man, give that money to me. You can't think of anything else to do with it. Just fucking give it to me. I can guarantee you I'll find something else better to do with it. End homelessness, you know, feed everyone on the planet, solve climate change, die in a fucking catastrophic implosion on a submarine trying to get selfies on the Titanic. (laughs) Like, and this guy wants to fight MMA. That's the lamest fucking thing I've ever heard of. You know how many actual MMA fighters would be MMA fighters if they had Mark Zuckerberg money? Zero. None. Give me a fucking break, man. You fucking kidding me with this shit? You fucking kidding Maybe, me? Maybe do we know for a fact that he didn't just get his ACL from his own clone in a kind of the <laughs> island situation? No, we that, don't. We don't know that. That he had a clone made and has been raised to believe that he is an autonomous human being all this time just to serve as spare parts for Mark Zuckerberg. I'm saying we can't rule it out. No, we can't rule it out. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, 
As we talked about a little bit last week on the Power Hour, which again, I think people would really enjoy if they went ahead and signed up for the CME Patreon, the antitrust lawsuit against the UFC seems to be trudging on at last into a new and more serious phase, one that might make the UFC want to think about settling. We have learned a lot about the UFC's business model and business practices from this ongoing lawsuit. I'd like to draw your attention, though, to a story today from Bloody Elbow, uh, this one by Anton Tawena. Uh The headline, lawsuit, quote, Darth Vader Dana White threatened rival promoter make life hard if he didn't sell to the UFC. And this one quotes a deposition of the boy Scotty Cokes. Oh, okay. Now you have my attention. Yeah. And it talks about the Zufa purchase of Strikeforce. And what they were hoping to gain by that purchase. Uh, and basically has Scotty Coke saying, this here's from quote from his deposition here. At that meeting, like basically where they had a meeting about talking about the sale, Lorenzo Fertitta reportedly stated he thought, quote, Strike Force is building a great brand, but Zufa felt there should only be one brand. So Zufa <laughs> would like to buy Strike Force. That is like the entire shit that they are being accused of, yes, essentially. That's, uh, that's Donald granted, Trump confessing over and over again to the crimes he's been charged with. Granted, that's one person giving his impressions of the meeting afterwards saying, you know, it's, it's hearsay to a point him saying, here's essentially uh, what they told us. Um, he talks a little bit about their, why the, the UFC had decided to, that they needed to buy Strikeforce when they did, that Strikeforce had a good heavyweight division, that they had signed Fedor, that they had announced the heavyweight Grand Prix tournament. Uh, he notes, affliction took the easy way out. Now it's UFC and strike force. And Scott Coger says, quote, if you can't battle these guys, it's over for the MMA industry. UFC will be the only one left. We're the last chance. Otherwise, fighters' purses will go down if UFC is the only one, is the only one, period. We're Luke Skywalker and UFC is Darth Vader and the Death Star. Uh, and also says that as they were talking about this potential sale and as talk of the sale started to stall, Dana White threatened that he would, quote, come after Strike Force's fighters, he would make our life hard, and, you know, give us a bad time, which does exactly sound like the kind of shit you can imagine Dana White saying. One of the really interesting things here in this story, however, is that it notes Strike Force was profitable mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. Strike Force was turning a, a modest profit, not, you know, broken ATM on the lawn money like the UFC has been doing. But it was turning a profit while paying fighters between 59% and 66% of revenue. So I guess maybe one thing to note there is that it is possible. It is possible to turn a profit as an MMA promoter and pay your fighters a fair share of the revenue. Like, I think a lot of people out there, a lot of the people who are quick to defend the UFC whenever any kind of pay conversation comes up, act like it just couldn't possibly be done. Strike Force was, you know, the number two promotion and was managing to do it. Yeah. And th- that's interesting information. So you're telling me all we needed to do to get a revealing interview out of Scott Coker was depose him and put him under oath. <laughs> Yes. Is that it? That's all yeah, we had to do? That's all. Okay. I yeah. should have done that 10 years ago, frankly. 
Uh, this is interesting. This is kind of what we had heard at the time that Strikeforce was turning a profit. But they, you know, they had just given these huge contracts to Dan Henderson and Fedor and some of these other guys. Uh, and it was turning a little bit of a profit, but I guess just not turning a enough of a profit from the corporate investors who were the ones who decided to sell Strikeforce out from under Scott Coker and and to the UFC. That is a very interesting, I don't know if it's a quote or a para- paraphrase uh, from Lorenzo Fertitta, basically giving up the store there in terms of the in terms of the the antitrust lawsuit, and then a quote that we can absolutely believe from Dana White. I would be surprised if he didn't say some shit like that to Scott Coker when push came to shove. Uh, I mean, the overall umbrella point of this class action lawsuit at this point, Ben, is that see, things just seem to keep going in the way of the plaintiffs, the former fighters, uh, you know, the judge in the case granted the class action status back in August, and then the UFC appealed that decision. And last week, the appeal was denied by the Ninth Circuit. The previous statements of the trial judge uh, seem to uh, back up many of the claims that the fighters have made in this, you know, uh, indicating that perhaps the, the judge is is going to come down on the on the fighter's side. I guess there's no guarantee of that, but it sure looks that way from all of the things that he has written up to this point. Uh, and so I guess you got to wonder, does the UFC try to settle this thing before we go to court uh, and go, go to trial, I guess? And the other, uh, the other question is, like, does this, if you're Endeavor, what are you thinking? What are you thinking when you see this stuff? Yeah, I mean... I think that it's entirely likely that as far as a parent company, TKO, I guess it would be now that UFC been separated off from Endeavor and lumped in with WWE, that if they're looking at this, they might see this as still a down-the-road problem. I know you are always looking into your crystal ball and saying you think it's only a matter of time before the UFC gets sold off to Saudi oil interests or something, uh, but it's entirely possible they could still see this as it's taken a long time just to get here. And so it will take longer still to get to any kind of point where you might actually face a question of whether you've won or lost this trial and have to write admittedly a huge check as a result. So that you could slow play this for a long time. You might also think that this is the point where you at least want to feel them out to see about a settlement, to see how committed they are to spending years and years to get this thing settled. Uh, cause it, it does seem like once you get past the point of getting the class certified and having this move on a lot of the evidence that we've seen, a lot of the information that we've seen definitely seems to point to the UFC doing exactly the stuff that the plaintiffs are accusing them of here. And here it also in this story, uh, the same part where uh, Scott Coker is characterizing Lorenzo Fertitta saying that Zufa felt there should only be one MMA promoter. Um, it says, quote, For its part, Zufa's internal correspondence in 2012 indicates that the UFC sought by its strike force acquisition to eliminate it as a competitor. In a conference call, UFC CEO Lorenzo Fertitta stated that, quote, Lawrence and Pete Dropic, who run Strike Force for us, went back to New York, had negotiating a, a separation agreement with Showtime to essentially shut Strike Force down. We would then pull all those fighters into the UFC, which is essentially what we want to do anyway. According to Zufa, acquiring Strikeforce's fighter contracts was definitely the most important aspect of the deal. I mean, that's kind of what 
<laughs> what they're saying you did is yeah. that you had an anti-competitive approach to acquiring a dominance of this market. And here you're saying we think there should only be one MMA promoter and we're going to buy them so that we can absorb their fighters uh, and just have them all under this one roof. And if they don't sell, we'll make life hard for them. And I can tell you when I worked at the IFL and when we tried to go into Las Vegas to promote a couple of events and we did you know, go in and have events. Uh, the UFC was telling radio stations around Las Vegas, if you run any of these guys' ads, we won't buy ads with you. And guess who does more business in Las Vegas? So that kind of stuff, it's not hard to imagine that the UFC meant it when it said, we'll make your life hard. Yeah. Um, but that is exactly the kind of stuff that is going to come back to haunt you if you're actually in an antitrust trial here. Yeah. And like as I said on Friday when we talked about this in the Power Hour, I don't, if you're a one of these plaintiffs, I don't know if you have much, uh, if you have much urgency to, to sign a, uh, you know, a, a, a settlement here. I don't, I mean, maybe just to get the, the whole thing over with, but it sure seems yeah. like you're going to win. So I don't know. I guess it comes down to how much you actually want to roll the dice before we wrap up again. I say it every time, but a shout out to the big homie, John Nash over at bloody elbow. He continues to lead the way on these stories. He's, as I have said before, probably the most important and impactful MMA reporter of the last decade reporting the UFC's financial stories, reporting this antitrust uh, story, and he will never get the credit for that. But I think it is true. All he gets is the the privilege of suffering some goofs over on, over on Twitter who are constantly telling <laughs> him to do his homework and whatnot. But he's doing great work over there on these stories. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. It's this Saturday, Ben, November 11th from Madison Square Garden. It's the one we've been waiting for. UFC 295, originally set to feature John Jones versus Stipe Miocic. That fight obviously was scrapped after an injury to Jones, and now we're looking at Yuri Prohaska against Alex Pereira for the light heavyweight title and Sergey Pavlovich versus Tom Aspinall for the interim heavyweight title. I want to get into talking about both of those fights, probably starting with the light heavyweight fight between, between Prohaska and Pereira. But first, I just wanted to ask you, how much did it hurt your level of hype to lose John Jones and Stipe Miocic? That was supposed to be one of the biggest fights of the year, one of the things we were primarily looking forward to during this season, during this quarter of UFC fights, and now it's gone. How much did that uh, hamstring this event for you? It hurts. It definitely hurts. It hurts not only because it, two big names that we were really looking forward to, but it also hurts because that's what made this one feel like a potentially historic event rather than just what you have now, which is a very good event with two very good, interesting fights. But that one felt like one way or another, you're going to kind of put a little bit of a bow on what's going on in heavyweight. Maybe the end of one era, maybe the end of a couple eras for all we knew. But it felt like what we were expecting there is... John Jones would really solidify himself as heavyweight champion by beating a formerly great and now increasingly, you know, middle-aged Stipe Miocic. And if Stipe somehow won that and defeated John Jones, well then, I mean, 
carry Stipe around on your shoulders because he's one of the all-time greats at that point. He's already the guy with the most heavyweight title defenses in the UFC. That one would have been the kind of freeze frame at the end of the movie moment for him if he could have done it. But it also seemed most likely John Jones was going to win and then perhaps retire as Gordon Ryan kind of let that cat out of the bag. And you were going to say that seals it for this era of heavyweight stuff. And now we look to the future where we have these younger up and coming heavyweights who are also worth getting excited about. And instead, you don't really get that. It feels like you're denied a sense of closure here. And instead, that whole thing is to be continued, maybe. And in the meantime, you get an interim title fight. Granted, a really good interim title fight. Like, you, if you'd have told us, you know, six months ago that we could look forward to Sergei Pavlovich and Tom Aspinall fighting for a heavyweight title, we'd have been like, hell yeah, give it to me, it's mine. Those, those are two good heavyweights that we've been excited about, so it makes great sense for them to fight each other. Uh, and then the big homie, Yuri P., yeah. who we're always excited about, coming back from the worst shoulder injuries in the history of shoulders, uh, always a fun weirds mobile to get to watch fight. He's going to fight Alex Pereira, who you know, we know is a scary dude. We just don't know how scary he's going to be at 205. That one seems like a fun one, too. It's just you don't get the the magnitude of meaning that you would have gotten from John Jones versus Tipe. You might actually, honestly, though, get two better fights in terms of just athletic uh, and, and competitive capability. Yeah, it's a big loss, obviously. You wanted to see that one. It was probably the one we were most excited about for the end of the year. And, and to have it delayed and maybe delayed for a long time. With John Jones's injury definitely hurts. Though neither of those two guys are getting any younger, and Stipe Miocic's attachment to fighting ain't, ain't getting any more secure. It seems like he he has been a guy who's been trying to move on or thinking about moving on for a while now. It wouldn't have surprised us in the slightest if this was both guys' last fight, or at least that John Jones told us that this was his last fight and that they both walked away. So now we have promoted obviously the light heavyweight title fight to the main event. Yuri Prohaska and Alex Pereira are going to fight over that belt already vacated by Jamal Hill due to injury. So there's a lot of injury stuff floating around. I wanted to talk first about Alex Pereira because this puts him in a really interesting situation. Don't you think he, he just had won the middleweight title at USC 281 back in November of last year. He TKO'd Israel Adesanya uh, in the last round of the fight. He comes in for the rematch in April of this year. He gets knocked out by Adesanya in the second round, loses the title, announces that he's going to move up to light heavyweight. He has one appearance against Jan Blahovich at UFC 291, wins a split decision, but in a performance that I don't think blew too many people away. And now here he is in the light heavyweight title fight against Yuri Prohaska, himself uh, returning from injury and uh, himself uh, <clears throat> himself a, a former... Uh, UFC light heavyweight champion. And so you get this matchup. But for Pereira, it's, it puts, does it put him in a perilous position? I guess is my question. Because if you lose this one, then what do you do? Because, you know, you just, you had the middleweight tile, you lost it. You get this very, uh, like, short path to a shot at the light heavyweight title. If you lose this one, are you locked out of the gold in the two divisions where it seems like you can fight? You know, I don't want to say locked out because... 
an exciting dude who will say yes to some fights when they come along, that that dude could find himself in some opportunities. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that that's the kind of thing where you never know how it's gonna go. Um I do think though it is sort of a critical moment right now in his career in terms of like the fans are sort of readjusting their perception of him and aren't quite sure where they're going to land. And so, you know, would be better to win this one than to lose it for those and other reasons. Um, but also if timing wise and a lot of, a lot of this situation, doesn't it seem a little bit fortuitous? Like, you know, these are some of the fights where if I, if I got a, like, if I have to go in there and fight somebody like Yuri P., I kind of guess I want to do it after uh, he he's coming off the worst shoulder injury in the history of shoulders, yeah. right? Like, yeah. hasn't fought in a while. Um, and matchup-wise, if I'm Alex Pereira, what I really don't want is a dominating wrestler, you know? At the same time, if I'm Yuri P., uh, I might feel like the big homie Yanni Blackjack showed me a blueprint and maybe showed me a blueprint that uh, I could follow. Like... We sure as shit didn't see Yuri P getting a win via, over Glover Teixeira via submission, of all things. So, you know, he got some tricks. He got some tools in the toolbox that maybe we haven't seen him make full use of yet. But I don't know. I feel like for both these guys, this one is kind of a... It's, it's the, the timing on it is critical. And... We already got in hype mode for UFC 295. They all had all they had to do was kind of slip in there to the main event spot, and we're already primed to pay a whole lot of attention. This could be a huge star-making turn for one of them. Yeah, and whoever wins it, you'd think would then be set up for at least a crowd pleaser, perhaps with Jamal Hill if and when he returns from his Achilles tendon injury. This whole division has been upside down since John Jones decided to leave it to go up to heavyweight, and so at least with this match maybe you get a sense of who could be one of the new dominant guys in the division obviously Prohaska has not lost a fight in the UFC yet the only thing that has defeated him was the worst injury in the history of shoulders and so you know if he if he emerges with the with the belt I think we would all kind of be like well we thought kind of thought he was the champion the whole time anyway and if it's yeah. Pereira then you got an exciting uh murder ball tossing knockout artist as your UFC light heavyweight champion set up for a, what would be a banger of a fight with Jamal Hill. So in all of those regards, I think it's great. I'm excited to watch it. And uh, hopefully we get a definitive answer that can set the light heavyweight division on a more secure path moving forward. The heavyweight division has never had a secure path. Frankly, nope. in the entire history of the UFC, it has never had a secure path. And so here we are running it back again, interim title, Sergey Pavlovich versus Tom Aspinall. Tom Aspinall himself just recently returned from an injury, defeated Marcin Tybura in July. First round TKO, minute and 13 seconds, performance of the night bonus bagged for Aspinall. Sergey Pavlovich comes in on a lengthy win streak. He has won six fights in a row. He just beat Curtis Blades in April of this year. Himself, a first-round TKO performance of the night bonus bagged. I don't know, man. This is a very interesting matchup between a couple of young heavyweights who would probably be the top guys in lieu of a John Jones weight jump. And so this is another one that I'm excited for, and it's another one where I will just tell you I don't 
I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to I'm sitting over here as the guy who had money down on Derek Lewis and uh, Jelton Almeida not to start round two. You want you want me to tell you what's going to happen? Is that really what you want? Ah, if you if you would, yeah. how the hell you gonna kick Derek Lewis in his head and get in full mount when we're like thirty seconds in, and you're gonna tell me you're gonna tell me that there are still like twenty four minutes and thirty seconds left to go in that fight? How is that even possible? I'm still mad about it. I can tell that's not even what this round is about, and you're talking about it. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I guess if that's what I'm going by, I'm gonna say Alex Pereira versus uh, or Alex Pereira versus or via uh, Oma Plata, flying Oma Plata. Wow. Yep. Okay. Well, I was trying to ask you about the the heavyweight fight. Okay. Uh, double knockout. Okay. <laughs> For sure. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that tells you everything we know. Uh, let's get into just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I saw this this week. The UFC is headed to the Kingdom of Saud. They're going to do a uh, an event. I believe they're targeting the same brand new arena that we had uh, Fury versus Ngannou in with the flat yeah. stage where people are dancing on the, the black water and everything. Sure, where the, the ring comes out of the floor? Yeah, that one. And maybe have the cage come out of the floor for the UFC. Uh, it is noted here in this bloody elbow story that I'm looking at that TKO bigwig Vince McMahon was instrumental in getting the UFC over there to Saudi Arabia due to WWE's previous inroads that it had made in Saudi Arabia. And then you got these Dave Meltzer quotes from uh, from his newsletter talking about Dana White intimating that McMahon is now involved with helping the UFC business and is not strictly working for WWE. Uh, and so the UFC has been left to run itself from the sports standpoint since Endeavor bought it. But now you got McMahon, who leads a big company, getting involved in the big picture deal making. So just in terms of Vince McMahon taking an active role now in the UFC, I guess I'm just saying, well, super. That's great. (laughs) I was sitting around earlier this week being like, God, if we could only get some more shady characters if we could get some more sort of morally complex, maybe not exactly black and white guys in UFC, that'd be, that'd be great. If we could just get some less upstanding people in charge of this thing. And now we got Dana White, so or we got uh, Vince McMahon. So great. Absolutely. Super. Invite him over. Hope he brings his fucking vaudeville villain mustache with him. I'm just saying. History of payouts for sexual harassment complaints. You just felt like it was too squeaky clean over there. At the yeah, UFC. we weren't doing enough fucking shady shit over there. Let's yeah. get into some fucking dirty ass shit now. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, did you hear Jorge Masvidal has wrapped up his legal issues stemming from running up on Colby Covington outside the poppy steak? Yeah. He pled guilty to misdemeanor battery agreed to pay the court fees associated with the case. Uh, I'm reading this story from MMA Fighting by Jed Meshu over there. <laughs> I'm just saying, he went on the MMA hour right after this thing was resolved. So that's telling you something about just how it works in MMA. You go straight from the courthouse after your guilty plea to talk to Ariel Helwani. All these people think, think they're going to come at Helwani, Chael Sona and Jamal Hill, all think like you're going to hurt Helwani's influence among fighters. People are going from the courthouse to his show. So... 
anybody who, whether if they get any sort of W at all in their lives, wants to go talk on Helwani's show about it. So I don't think you can think that you're going to limit that guy's access anytime soon. But it's telling what Jorge Masvidal has to say right after he has wrapped up this case, Chad. Because for one thing, he starts out says, for starters, this little bitch Colby was trying to hit me with three felonies and a misdemeanor after he had declared numerous times that if he saw me in the street, he was literally going to kill me. It's the weirdest fucking shit. I couldn't talk about this before, but now I can. Uh, then he goes on to kind of rehash this whole incident and uh, all the money he spent on it and everything. Now I'm going to read you this next quote and I want to repeat to you one more time just so you have the right context. This is right after he has pleaded guilty to misdemeanor battery of Colby Covington for running up on him in the street. Quote, I don't know when, but me and Colby are going to see each other at some point, whether it's in a fucking cage or I don't know where the fuck it's going to be, but we're going to see each other for him lying on my name, for him fucking pressing charges, for everything that he's fucking done. We're going to see each other. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to knock the rest of his fucking teeth out. I got I got to knock two of his fucking fake ass teeth out. Three felonies and a misdemeanor. Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> you piece of shit. You know with three felonies, I never could have had a job again. Look, I was scared for my life. And then in brackets, smiles knowingly. <laughs> well, at least it sounds like he's learned his lesson. Right? <laughs> so there's that. Gonna come straight out of court and be like, I'm gonna see you. I'm gonna see you somewhere. Knock the rest of your teeth out. I'm just saying, ain't no sport like MMA. Nope. You know? No, there's not. All right, that's gonna do it for this week's co main event podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back all week over on the Patreon page. Wednesday, you got the live chat. Thursday, you got doing the damn thing. Friday, you got the power hour. And if you don't catch up with us there, we'll see you right back here next week on The Proper. Thanks for listening, everybody. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. What kind of odds do you think I can get on uh, Alex Pereira versus Oma Plata? The Oma Plata. Probably pretty good. Pretty I good. I haven't I think pretty the good. odds, but generally you can get a pretty sweet deal there going on uh, betting on somebody by submission. I've got the... I actually have the... Uh, the DraftKings thing open. I wonder if I can find out what we're doing here. Tom Aspinall, a slight favorite over Sergey Pavlovich. Alex Pereira, a slight favorite over Yuri P. That's interesting. He's minus 125. They don't have any of the other prop bets posted yet, so I couldn't tell you Alex Pereira by decision, but I imagine that that minus money that you would get on him as the favorite would probably go way, way up if you wanted to take him by decision or by submission. By submission. Yeah. You know, you know what that is? The, the odds makers, they're not sure about that shoulder. That's what that is. <laughs> well, yeah, they heard it was the worst injury in the history of human shoulders. So who could yep. blame them? Who could blame them on that? 